because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. We've had a lot of good guests lately, and we've got a really good guest today. The subject is the true state of renewable energy, and the guest is definitely the person who's been the best writer on this issue for the past year and a half in particular. His name is Mark Mills. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's written a series of fascinating papers on the economics of so-called renewable energy, the physics, and also very related, the mining requirements. So I wanted to bring him on and just ask him a, a whole bunch of questions, and I think we'll all benefit a lot. So Mark, uh, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Good to see you. Likewise. All right, let's 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 jump in. So I'm talking about the true state of renewable energy, but let's first talk about the true state of energy. And as part of the context here, we're being told in the post-COVID world that maybe we're in an era where we're going to use a lot less energy and that maybe that'll help us achieve green energy goals. So what's your take on what future energy use actually looks like? Uh, there'll be more energy use, not less in the future. That's <laughs> your answer. The idea that that a, uh, a disastrous uh, global economic shutdown uh, portends somehow permanent condition of using less energy is naive on every possible level. It's naive because the things that people talk about doing to deal with the kind of health challenges that we've had to manage, uh, use energy, net net, may use more energy. You can talk about telecommuting, if you like in a minute, how much energy that uses or saves. But more importantly, it's not, it's just not credible to believe that after 10,000 years that human beings have finally decided they have everything they need, everybody on the planet has all they need, everybody on the planet has all the comforts they need or will ever want, and we're just gonna stay about where we are forever. I mean, it, it, this is ludicrous as soon as you state it in, in that fashion. Eventually, economies will recover, and when economies recover, energy demand goes up. Well, you mentioned telecommuting. So you, you've, given a, you've written a lot of interesting stuff about energy use, in particular in the digital realm. So uh, why don't you talk about telecommuting, but also more broadly, what's happening with the advent of machine learning slash AI and other kinds of digital trends? Because I think these are often thought of as pretty low uses of energy because it doesn't cost us that much to charge up our iPhone or even to run our desktop. Sure. Well, there's, there's a, a nice sort of uh, implicit mythology about not just green energy, but about telecommunications, about computing, about information technology broadly, that somehow because it's in cyberspace, it's not physical. Again, as soon as you state it, it's obvious. The, everything about what you and I are doing right now, what everybody does with their smartphones and computers requires hardware physical machines that are plugged in that consume energy, physical machines that are built from minerals that consume energy to extract and process. All of those activities have real energy consequences that are knowable and measurable. And they're pretty significant. You know, roughly speaking, the infrastructure that supports what we're doing right now, Zooming or if people use Google Hangouts or whether it's you know, Microsoft Teams, all the video transmission consumes energy in the networks that carry that transmission. It's about a mile's worth of driving worth of energy per hour of video, roughly speaking. So every, every student that instead of walking to class is now Zooming to class on, on the internet, uh, they used to walk or take a bike or take a bus, but the act of using video on the internet is uses as much energy for them personally for each hour 
equal to about one mile of driving or about four miles on a, on a bus or a train. So you, if you take tens of millions of students doing that and doing that for four or five hours a day throughout the year, you get the billions of miles worth of driving equivalent and energy consumption just for teleconferencing. Um, what are, can you give us some of the other examples? Because you just have so many good examples of, of so, so let's take the world of AI slash machine learning. Like what's happening there in terms of the growth of computing? In one of your articles, you talked about Facebook's electricity use, something like doubling, and it was mostly attributed to AI type right. processing. Well, well, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence are fascinating. And they've evoked an awful lot of hype themselves. But what's most important about those uh, systems and technologies is that they, from a physics perspective, constitute the most energy-intensive use of computing in the history of computing. That's because if you think about how most computers operate, they do a calculation or a task. When they're done the task, they're sort of idle. So you can share computing tasks and become very energy-efficient about doing things that are simple. Machine learning essentially has the machine, which is the silicon uh, logic processor, running constantly running flat out. That leads, leads to incredible energy consumption. In fact, a lot of uh, machine learning and AI engineers are quite concerned about it because, I'll give you one example. Uh, the tasks to learn how to do something means that you, you present to the computer a whole lot of, say, images, and you, ask, and you hope the computer over time will look at the images and come up with the fact that the computer can now recognize your face or recognize a cat or recognize street sign. That learning process takes time. It can be accelerated with, you know, supercomputers. But a, a single learning task that, in which there's millions of tasks can use as much energy as a car, 50 cars with a fuel every month. That's one learning task. And if you go to supercomputer learning tasks, you get to astronomical energy consumption. You get the Boeing uh, jumbo jet size energy used to run machine learning processes to look at things like a virus and how to analyze it. Yeah, and if you, you think about something like a virus and how to analyze it, this seems like one of the many cases where there's an unlimited need for machine learning. Sure. I mean, they're just all these things, particularly sure. if you think of medical research that can extend life, that's not something we're gonna want less of, it's something we're gonna want more of. And so that really portends yeah. a kind of, I would say, beneficent arms race for mm -hmm. capability. And uh, well, energy is direct is always directly proportional to productivity. But here, it's easy to say, "Oh, well, I only need so much of a refrigerator." But how much do you need of life-saving research? Well, as you, you make an excellent point, Alex. In fact, what one of the things I've written before is that when you look at the sort of three domains of what humans consume, you consume food, material things around us, and information. So that's a, broadly speaking, everything that we do. And there's a limit to how much food people can consume. So we can make forecasts about the amount of energy required to produce food for the world. And we'll be very accurate about it because the difference between a starvation diet and a diet of gluttony is only about 2x in terms of calories and only about 2x in terms of primary energy needed to produce the food. So we know, roughly speaking, what the future looks like in terms of energy consumption in agriculture. Similarly, though, in the materials domain, it gets a little more complicated because then you're trying to guess how many things could we ever invent that we have to build? And when you in, invent something in, and build it, it consumes energy to make the thing and energy to operate the thing. There's, there's pretty much an unlimited char character of things that you can imagine we might invent. But to your point, if you invent a refrigerator, there's only so many 
cooling degree days you need in a refrigerator in a home. And you could have a couple of refrigerators, but you're not going to have 10 refrigerators. It doesn't make any sense. So you can, again, look at a boundary condition for how much stuff the world needs. And, and you can look at the underserved people in the world and say, well, you know, if somebody doesn't have a refrigerator, they're going to want at least one. And you can make an estimate about how many people there will be in the future. When it comes to information and information processing, to your point, it's essentially unlimited. There's no limit in the number of tasks we'd like to undertake in research, in medicine, in understanding the universe, understanding our physical environment. Everything that involves information fundamentally has an unlimited demand. So as we get more and more efficient, energy efficient at information processing, and we have become astonishingly more energy efficient, the demand for the information itself grows far faster than the efficiency in making and processing information. Yeah, I remember when I read in your, it was your essay on magical thinking, you, you, know, you made the point about how it's hard to think of anything, maybe it's impossible to think of anything with a greater increase in energy efficiency than computing in terms of what, you know, what one kilowatt hour or whatever unit of energy can do right. in, terms of, in terms of processing information. And yet the demand, even though it's thousands of times more efficient, the demand has increased even more than that, which I just found fascinating. Well, we have improved the energy efficiency of computing more than a billion fold in the oh, last wow. 40 years. There's, no, there's nothing in the universe that we've ever invented that we could improve, haven't improved that much or could ever improve that much. But the consumption of the product, which is data, has in, increased far more than a trillion fold. We have a, a, this astronomical numbers of data that we consume. And we'll, we'll make energy efficient uh, processing continue to uh, proceed. There will not, there's not going to be an end to how efficiently we can make computing. In fact, some of the new algorithms and, and the new approaches will make machine learning so efficient that a lot of the machine learning algorithms will be embedded literally on what's called the edge of the network in, in your eyeglasses as intelligent, you know, augmented reality tools. Uh, but at the head end where the supercomputers lie and the data centers will keep expanding because the utility of what you want to do is again, unlimited. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's, that's very cool, but we really need to talk about where, where is this energy going to come from? Come, come and where, exactly. Yeah, and let's talk about where it comes from now, because I think most people have the impression that, well, renewable energy is probably at least a third of the world's electricity, and it's quickly uh, surpassing fossil fuels. So like, what's the actual current reality of where electricity comes from? Well, first, I'd like to two things. One, I'm make the point that we really should talk more about where energy comes from, not electricity per se, because- Yeah, let's do that first. Right? Right, because obviously the whole idea of replacing you know, gasoline powered cars with battery powered cars is not just an electricity trade, it's a fuel trade. So if you look at the United States, we get a few percent of our energy from wind and solar, three, that's it. I mean, it's, it's uh, not nothing, because it used to be close to zero, so it's, it's, you know, growth rates from very tiny numbers seem impressive when the media talks about these huge growth rates in solar and wind. The growth rates from trivial to, realistically, it sounds unkind to say, but from trivial to insignificant. 3% of our energy is not significant. Globally, the numbers are similar. The world's energy supply that comes from wind and solar is measured in a few percentage points. And that's, okay. by the way, that's, as you know, it's after, after 20 years of climate awareness, which is, you know, what we're talking about, and hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies pushed into the wind and solar domains to help accelerate the expansion of those technologies. 
Yeah, so I'm glad you made the distinction between electricity and energy because that's something, that's a distinction that's not often made. So if, if we could think of, okay, there are these categories of transportation slash liquid fuel, and then there's industrial process heat. Uh, and, that, you know, those are two things where fossil, direct burning of fossil fuels is just completely dominant. Uh, so I think when we're talking about electricity, we need to keep that context. But what about just in the world of electricity? Because we're talking about, I mean, that's the world that the digital world is in. And we can right. think about that expanding dramatically and so there's a question of okay what's providing it now and what's providing it sure. in the future so what does it currently look like in terms of electricity provision well as you know in the united states after billions of dollars of spending we're we're pushing close to 10 percent of our electricity coming from wind and solar you know it's in the eight percent nine percent range i think last year so that's that's not nothing i mean it's again it's uh it's, it's starting to approach nuclear power right nuclear power is not even 15% anymore. I think it's about 12 and a half or 13% of our electricity from nukes. So it's, it's, uh, it's a significant change. Uh, and it's meaningful, by the way. I'm not, uh, as, as you know, I'm not, uh, some of the things that wind and solar are bad things. Uh, they're perfectly good technologies. So they have applications that are important all over the world. But it, for most people, there's been so much press attention, to your point, afforded to wind and solar, that the average person seems to think that they're a significant source of electricity. And most of the forecasters now, the optimists, are talking about you know, double or, doubling or tripling the share of uh, electricity comes from, uh, from wind and solar. And that's possible. It has, it has costs, both economic and physical costs. And that's not nothing if we get to 20%, let's say. But the question you have to ask yourself is where does the 80% come from? And obviously, it's primarily hydrocarbons. Yeah, I mean, I'm even a little bit less sanguine on wind and solar in that, I mean, we can see if we look at the prices of, of coal and particularly natural gas, we see those going down over time. And we had a coal and gas dominated electricity system. And so we'd expect prices to go down. Uranium prices have certainly gone down. And yet electricity is becoming more expensive. And it's, it's usually expensive in proportion to the percentage of solar and wind. And we see this with Germany and Denmark paying Absolutely. three plus times what we... So it's it's not that it's earning 10% or 8% in the conventional sense. Correct. Well, you make, look, you make a very important point. A lot of people who worry about why and how we should make our electricity uh, forget that while engineers can do almost anything you ask them to do for them reason, other than violate the laws of physics, uh, you can do a lot of things, but they cost money. So your point is absolutely right. So wind, wind and solar have one of the highest percentages of supply in Germany. In Germany, as you know, spends about 300% more on its electricity, German citizens, compared to Americans. But in the United States, here's, here's the puzzling thing. Over the last 10 years, maybe 12 years, the cost of electricity in the United States has gone from about 20%. And you know, 20% over a decade plus doesn't seem like a lot. But obviously it begs the question, if the price, to your point, of coal and natural gas have collapsed, and they have, and they've collapsed because of hydraulic fracturing. If the price of coal and natural gas collapsed, and those two fuel sources provided 70% of the electricity in America, but the cost of those fuels collapsed by more than 70%. Why did electric rates go up? They should have gone down. The fact that electric rates went up tells you that something's going on that's causing the bills to rise for people. My, by my calculation, and it's very rough order, something that you ordered of $30 billion a year is going into people's pockets in the wind and solar domains that otherwise would have gone into consumers' pockets. The difference between what the price of electricity should have been collapsing fuel prices versus what actually happened. 
Yeah, and I want to just stress one thing about this, which is, you know, I mean, the price of you know the price of energy affects the price of everything. I mean, the energy is the food of the machines. And if you just think of something like AI, and you think about developing a vaccine for COVID nineteen, you know, that's the kind of thing you want to happen sooner rather than later. The more expensive the electricity is, the we have limited resources, ultimately limited time. Ultimately, it's going to take longer for those things to happen when electricity is more expensive. And again, this is with what, 10% market uh, penetration. So this is, it's really serious stuff. It's not just like we have a fixed economy and we can pay whatever we want for electricity. That adds cost to everything else. Well, the, the long run trend for society is when they do two things, reducing the number of people needed to produce energy, food and fuel. So you wanna have more food and fuel produced with fewer people producing. In a perfect world, you'd have one person producing yeah. all the world's food and fuel and a bunch, a bunch of robots and computers. That, that's the perfect outcome. And the second thing you, you want to have happen is less of our resources, physical resources that we have to take out of the earth and less of our financial resources devoted to producing food and fuel. So for most of human history, somewhere between 80 and 90% of all of, of an economy was tied up with producing food and fuel. With the advent of hydrocarbons, that share dropped, as you know, globally, roughly 10% give or take, depends on the country you're in, but in, in the Western world and in the emerging markets, roughly 10% of an economy is associated with purchasing food and fuel. This is an astonishing change, and it's come from having fewer people, fewer resources, and less money attached to producing food and fuel. That comes from high energy density fuels and new technologies. It doesn't come from going backwards and increasing the number of people and increasing the costs to produce a unit of energy. And that, that's a great segue into a point that you make so well in your different uh, articles, which is, uh, at least the way I characterize this is the idea that energy is a process. So when you're looking at something called renewable energy, you can't just think, oh, it's just magically the sun and the wind give us energy and it just, we'll do it over and over. What's the process? So let's, let's just start with solar. What are, the, what are a lot of the process? And, and I would just say from the beginning, there's always the process with the unreliables, as I call them, solar and wind. <laughs> you need a process for right. changing an unreliable input into a reliable right. output. And in effect, that process is all the reliable power plants and infrastructure on the grid without sure. which these can't exist. But even if we're just talking about like the solar panels themselves, what are some of the processes involved in making those that people aren't aware of? Let me, before I go into that, let's, let's emphasize your point about unreliables. The, I talked about the two metrics that society has pursued for all of human history, which is fewer resources and less money and land associated with producing urban energy fewer man hours. The other thing that's been a uh, accomplishment of the modern era is that we get our energy in, and food, which is a form of energy, when we need it, not when nature chooses to provide it to us. This has been a miraculous transformation in society. Societies throughout all history have been subject to the vicissitudes of nature giving you food and fuel when, it, when it's available, rather than when you, when you need it, when our society needs it. So data centers are a great example of the pinnacle of the, uh, of the food chain of technologies, if you like, where they can't afford to be off for milliseconds. So they need electricity all the time. So to your point, the question is, how do you do that? Well, if you build a solar array, you have two things that go on. One is it obviously doesn't produce electricity all the time. It's self-evident. So you have to do things to make sure electricity goes to the data center when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. Those things cost money and use resources. And those things are non-trivial. The underlying 
point you're getting to is if you think about a windmill or a solar array and think, well, it's free, first order question is, is all energy is free? There's this kind of rubric that, look, solar and wind are free, we should be using it, is a uh, category error. Oil and gas are free. Uh, we didn't create them. Uh, whether you're a theological or non-theological person and, and try to guess why they're there is completely irrelevant. They're free. The cost of energy is associated with access to land where the optimal amount of that energy, primary energy exists. And land access costs you money everywhere in all, at all times. And you have to build machines to access the free energy to convert it into a form that's useful and deliver it in a way that's useful and del deliver it at a time that's useful. So with solar, you begin with, you know, as you know, you have glass and selenium and you have silicon, you have all these, and, and steel and nickel and copper and silver, all the elements that you need to produce a solar array. All those elements have to be mined out of ore in, in the earth. So what you care about if you're environmentalist, I would think, is how much stuff do I have to dig out of the earth to build the machines to convert the energy that's free into energy that I can charge somebody for because I've built machines. Roughly speaking, and on average, you have to extract from the earth 10 times more physical materials to deliver a unit of energy using wind and solar compared to delivering a unit of energy building a gas turbine and going to hydrocarbon fossil fuel. So can you explain why that is and how that connects to the issue of energy density? Well, it's, you know, the energy, de the energy density of wind and sun is dictated by how much weight the... If, if you look at a calculation, and this is not difficult to do or look up, people can do it on their own magic Google machines, you want to figure how many watts or watt hours of energy there is per square mile or square kilometer of the Earth's surface, if it's sun or wind. Those numbers are fixed. They're determined by where you are on Earth, time of day, and time of year. So you have to gather this diffuse energy. And the, the wind is diffuse by virtue of the fact that if it weren't, if, it was high, if the winds are at extreme speeds at hurricane speeds, it would scour the surface of the Earth. If the sun were more intense, it'd be like the planet Mercury, and lead would melt on the surface. That's not particularly particularly good place to live. So we have the photons that arrive are what they are. We know that there's no mystery to that. There's about a kilowatt per square meter of photons arriving to the surface of the Earth. So then you're dealing with the physics of the photovoltaic effect and what, how many, what percentage of those photons can be converted into electricity. This is also not a mystery. This is fixed in the physics. There's a maximum amount that, that can happen. And in silicon photovoltaic cells, it's about 30%. 32% of the incoming photons can become electrons. And then you, then you would look at this and say, well, all right, um, how many acres of things do I have to build? And that's when you begin to get the big numbers. So you would have, uh, let me go back to wind. Because wind and solar are very similar in terms of their energy density. And they're very similar for very similar reasons. The wind is caused by the heat from the sun, essentially. And so you end up with a very similar sort of heat flux coming to the sur surface of the earth. But a 100, 100 megawatt wind farm, which is, you know, a tiny wind farm, but that involves building, let's, let's use um, big, big wind turbines the size of the Eiffel Tower, you know, these five megawatt wind turbines. So you build 20 of those. And that, that, that 20 of those, each the size of the Eiffel Tower, are monstrous machines consuming thousands and tons of materials. I can produce that 100 megawatts with a natural gas-fired turbine that's the size of a single tractor trailer with a buried pipe. So you look at five things the size, or 20 things rather, the size of, a, of the Eiffel Tower versus one tractor trailer. That's the difference in energy density between a natural gas-fired turbine and a wind farm or a solar farm. 
And the, the wind turbine is not dependent on nature. Well, wind turbine? <laughs> oh, no, dependent. rather. Good, oh, good catch. <laughs> I meant the, the natural gas. You passed the test. Exactly. That's right. Well, certainly. So that the data center is running on the, uh, the wind turbines. When the wind lulls or goes away, and of course, wind does, comes and goes, depends on where you live, then you, what do you do? Well, you know the answer. Everybody's throwing up batteries. But let's just stick with what actually happens in the real world. What happens in the real world is you use the gas turbine, so the oil fire turbines, oil fire, diesel generators, because you want to have the electricity available immediately to keep everything lit and operating. So what you're really doing is piggybacking the existing grid. So the point you made earlier that I was emphasizing, the cost of electricity has gone up in Germany and in the United States as we add more wind and solar. That's because those, those machines are counting on using the existing grid to back them up. So they're getting a free ride. But when you use the existing grid to back them up, you're actually increasing the cost of using the existing grid because you're underutilizing it. So the, the kilowatt hours that you used to produce, let's say 80% of the time and 90% of the time from a combustion turbine, let's say you're using, doing, using it half as often. That roughly doubles the cost of electricity from the turbine because you're spreading the capital costs of the turbine out over half as many kilowatt hours. Um, interesting. So. One way I found it helpful to class, I like what you said about the, like, if you look at the real world, what happens? I mean, I think there are like three, if you want to use unreliables, there are like three theoretical possibilities. So one right. is, and the one that's actually done is what I call relying on reliables. So basically just relying on the reliable power. So good, good, good phrase. I like Number that. two is <laughs> relying on. Good, good. And I'll give you credit. Carry on. Sorry. Good. And so number two, which has sort of fallen out of fashion, but used to be advocated is relying on far away unreliables. So right. this idea that, well, it's unreliable here, but if we can yeah. connect the whole world together, then it all works. Sure. So could you comment yeah. on that one? No. Well, it's nutty. <laughs> it really is. I mean, the, um, so the, it, it's been proposed. I mean, look, the uh, EU looked at building a solar arrays in uh, the Sahara Desert because the sun is more reliable there. It's probably obvious to anybody who knows a little bit about the geography and having a massive supergrid connect not just the Sahara Desert, but all of Europe. So that, to your point, the idea is if the wind's not blowing here, it's blowing somewhere. The sun's not shining here, it's shining somewhere. So then what you're trading is an increase of machines. You have to now think about two, the two things in logic here. It means that I have to build somewhere or everywhere twice as many or three times as many machines as they otherwise need. Because if I have my wind turbines where I live built to supply me electricity, but somebody 5,000 miles away wants to now use them because their wind went away, they can't, they're going to steal my electricity. I have to have extra wind turbines because I happen to have wind. So you have to oversize the grid of all the extra wind machines everywhere. And you have to oversize it by a arithmetical amount equal to how often there's no wind and sun. So du roughly doubling or tripling. Then you have to count the energy and the reliability costs of extraordinarily long transmission lines. And transmission lines cost money. They cost millions of dollars a mile to build because they're made of materials you have to mine from the earth. So the idea that you could build a super grid and knit all the, you know, it's, 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 it's sun, the sun is shining on the other side of the earth some now so I can port electricity to this side of the earth. This is, this is truly nutty. I mean, it's not technically impossible. You can build transmission lines that long. No one has, which could. That would be extraordinarily expensive. It would be subject to unreliability, but the lines fail. Exactly the kind of things that lead to blackouts in smaller grids in countries, in small countries or regions of our country, 
will now start to happen globally because you'll have an exponential impact on the number of potential events that can probabilistically happen to take down the grid. This is, this is a, a truly bad idea that would be truly and astonishingly expensive. Uh, can you just elaborate a little bit on the increased, like exponential increase in the probability of bad events? Because I, I, I think I understand that, but I, I might have gone over people's heads just because it was so quick. Well, you, you think about any network. And, and so a power network is very difficult to keep reliable and energized. I mean, one of the, one of the most incredible engineering achievements of the 20th century is the American power grid. You hear this people saying, we have a, a 19th century grid. It's time to make a modern grid, time to make the grid smart. This is such silly talk. The, one of the first applications of computing was, to, was on the electric grids in the United States in the 1950s. That's where computers were used almost first. Control systems are astonishingly efficient and incredibly difficult to make. Massive flows of energy. The flows of energy are in transmission lines are equal to super tankers worth of energy flowing in the fractions of seconds through small cables, the diameter of inches. These are, these are incredible amounts of force and energy and yet we have to dynamically control this when it's moving at essentially light speed. Let me give you an analogy this way. If you think about energy flows in a grid, it's invisible, but if I wanted to visualize it, almost everybody's had the experience of trying to carry it like a sheet of water, something, not a bucket, but imagine carrying a sheet of water, not spilling. So the kinds of, and you know that sloshing mode you get and then suddenly it spills over when you want? Yeah. That sloshing mode is a phase problem. If they get in phase and they just, spills over. The transmission lines have phase problems. So you end up with little events that ha don't happen very often in a small grid are the kind of events that happen if you make the grid exponentially bigger, you're gonna have many more events that'll happen. Improbable events happen more often if you have bigger system inside of which that's operating. And these are very difficult systems to manage. What's an example of that kind of event? Well, we, we had that uh, with the outage at, you know, if you remember the uh, 2000, uh, 2013 outage, I believe it was, uh, in New York City. So you end up with a power plant failing somewhere, a transmission line uh, getting overheated. The electricity, uh, when it's flowing, causes heat in the lines. And if it's a hot summer day, the lines get even hotter and they sag. In fact, that's, as you probably know and all the listeners know, that's what happened infamously in uh, California with PG&E's network. Instead of clearing trees so when the line sags and it wouldn't light them on fire, they save money by spending it on wind and solar instead of clearing trees. But when the lines sag, uh, they can get in contact with the ground. That causes an electrical change. You get a change in the resistance of the line. You then have, can have a change in the phase angle. And when that happens, things get out of phase. You have to control it rapidly. If, if something else happens simultaneously, a, transmit, a transformer fails, let's say, one of these giant capacitors fails because it's overheated. Then you get two events happening simultaneously and you get, a, you get a shutdown. The shutdown then creates kind of like a wave front pushing down the transmission lines. If the operators at the next interface don't disconnect, then that can transmit and travel through their system and cause failures and you get this cascading domino of Got it. Okay, so I mentioned that I, I classified, I think there are three theoretical approaches. So there's relying on unreliables, there's relying on faraway unreliables, and then there's relying on man-made storage, which you've done a lot of good stuff on. And so that, that sounds plausible, like, oh, well, we'll just store all the electricity, and then when we need it, we'll just use it. So what's, what's actually going on with the physics and economics there? Well, storing energy is hard. 
it turns out. And storing electricity is the hardest form of energy to store. The easiest form of energy to store in physics is the potential energy associated with gravity, lift something up. So pumped hydro plants that pump water, you know, water falls down and spins a turbine, makes electricity. When you have extra energy at night, you can reverse the turbines, use them as motors, push water up a hill, and you're essentially storing the energy in an intermediate form. And it's inefficient because you got a lot of transitions going on. You know, pumped hydro is about 70% efficient. You're throwing away about 30% of the energy between the, all the you know, transactions that you're doing. But you can, you can also store energy as heat. You can store, think about it. You can store energy as cool. That's an ice cube. That's what an ice cube does. It's, store, it's, storing, it's storing the form of energy. And you heat up a hot pan with storing energy. Electricity is tough because electrons repel each other. So when you put lots of them together, they repel each other. They don't want to stay near each other. So batteries don't store electrons. They store ions, right? Positive and negative ions. They separate in a chemical bath the positive and negatives, use electricity to push them apart, and then when you let them come back together, they form electricity again. That's, a, that's the essence of what a battery is. The problem is, you know, batteries, the battery electric chemistry has been known for a very long time. And batteries are really amazing, amazing things. I mean, they're, they're kind of magical machines. But the amount of energy that you can store in electrochemical form is not a mystery. It's just not magic. It's not like, it's, it's not like, it's not something we make up. We, we know precisely what the maximum amount of electrochemical energies associated with each kind of chemistry. So lithium chemistries are among the best because lithium is one of the most active elements on the periodic table. And they're really uh, phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's really magical what your, your cell phone can do, what a Tesla can do. But it, like the electrochemistry in a you know, vat of whatever lithium chemistry you want is 50-fold less energy dense than hydrocarbons, or put differently. You can store you can store five thousand percent more energy in a pound of hydrocarbons than a pound of lithium batteries. That's a big difference. In economic terms, batteries have gotten a lot cheaper, but they're still astonishingly more expensive than just storing oil in a tank. The difference with the difference in cost between storing oil in a tank to burn it to make electricity when you need it, and storing electricity in a battery is more than two hundred fold higher. Or put in, in dollar terms. You can store a barrel's worth of energy for about 50 cents a barrel. That's what it costs. That's not bad. In a steel tank, you leave it, use it when you need it. If you want to store that amount of energy in a battery, the cheapest grid-scale batteries, it costs you $200 a barrel of oil energy. $200 per barrel of oil energy equivalent for the battery to store that energy. This is an astonishingly expensive way to store energy. So in terms of if we look at just the reality of, of battery use, what's the state of using batteries as storage for electricity on grids? The, the political state is one of wild enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see a lot of money spent on it. The physics state is one of uh, nothing's changed. So if you wanted to store, let's put this in terms that have some, some, uh, some meaning. Uh, if we have electric grid operating, to your point, and we need to store electricity in batteries, how, how many batteries would, would we need? I mean, we, if we're using a wind and solar grid and we're not going to use the faraway solution you talked about, uh, we want to store it in batteries. Let's say we want a half a day's worth of electricity stored in batteries. That's not very much. I mean, that's... that's yeah, I would uh, want at least three. You, what you really... If you think about what the weather data tell you, you would probably want something like a week. If you look at the possibility 
over the next 50 years or 30 years of the lifespan of say wind farms and the grids that we build, how often does the whole United States have no wind, the entire country, no wind and no sun, cloud cover over the whole country and no wind. That happens with surprising frequency over decades. So you'd want to, and it happens for days at a time, not just for hours at a time. Well, let's just do the, let's do the half day because it's, it's a nice round, it turns out it's a nice round number. Storing a half day's worth of electricity and batteries would require us to take a Tesla Gigafactory. This is still the largest battery factory in the world in Nevada, Elon Musk built. You need a thousand years of production from that factory to build enough batteries to store a half day's worth of US electricity. So you could build a thousand of those factories in theory, right? Uh, but each of those factories is $5 billion. You start doing numbers like this and you're spending trillions of dollars to build factories to store a half day's worth of electricity. This is more money than we spent to build the whole grid. This is, these are crazy numbers. Yeah, and even, I mean, even what are you gonna use to build them? You're gonna use fossil fuels to build them. Well, of course, but, and more importantly, it's, as I've written in my latest paper, you can use a lot of materials to build them. It takes, it takes not just lithium, it takes copper, it takes nickel, it takes you know, cobalt, it takes manganese. There's a whole soup of elements that you have to use to make these batteries, just like you do anything else. So the, the wind solar battery pack not only uses fossil fuels to make those things, it, but we have to dig more stuff out of the earth using fossil fuels, by the way, because these big machines are oil burning backhoes and oil burning grinders and oil burning drills. So these huge machines have to extract extraordinary quantities of materials. The kind of pass that we're talking about of the, in terms of the percentage of the US electricity and the world's electricity that people propose to come from wind, solar, and batteries will, will lead to the biggest increase in mining in the history of the world. It'd be an astonishing increase in mining. It's, it, it still won't eliminate the use of hydrocarbons. So that, I was actually gonna ask, uh, ask next about uh, mining. So I'm glad you, you brought up uh, mining. So you mentioned, I mean, I assume it's that the energy density is very related to the mining requirements. Is, is that sure. right? Well, yeah, exactly. If you have to build lots of wind turbines, there's lots of concrete, steel, and fiberglass, you're going to have to do a lot of mining to get all the materials. And that's, that's the beginning of the, uh, of the food chain going back upstream to the mines. And this is a, this is, so one thing I want to ask about, it's mostly a foreign food chain. Right. It, it is. So the, the two things that would happen with the green energy path is we, we make two trades. We trade liquids and gases primarily for solids. All the things that are associated with wind turbines and solar arrays and batteries are solid energy materials, nickel and cobalt, lithium, you know, lithium carbonate. So we're trading liquids and gases, which are very easy and inexpensive, and cheap in energy terms to move for things that have to move by truck. They're very energy intense to move and very expensive. That's the first trade we made, we'll make. The second trade we'll make is we'll dramatically increase the imports of materials because the United States is hostile to mining. We haven't had any significant increase in our mining sector in decades. So all of the uh, mines that will be open to build all these machines are almost certainly going to be open globally. This is, this is great for those countries. I mean, we're talking Russia, China, um, Bolivia, my homeland, Canada, they'll be, they'll be very happy. We need lots more nickel. But one of the biggest nickel mines in the world is in Siberia. Most environmentalists don't like the fact that we mine in the Arctic. But above the Arctic Circle last month, didn't get much news. The second biggest 
oil spill in the world happened. The biggest oil spill was the Exxon Valdez, which is moving oil, right, to make gasoline. The second biggest oil spill, almost as big as the Exxon Valdez, took place in June of this year at the, at the at Russia's huge nickel mine. This, by the way, the oil was there to run the machines that mine the nickel. It's a massive oil spill. So you could think that nickel is essential for batteries, electric vehicles. Let's put it this way. We just experienced the first oil spill in the service of electric cars. <laughs> that's a brilliant, I think that's such a good example. And I wasn't familiar with that example, but it really illustrates what's going on with the full process of exactly. making this stuff versus its magic. Let's talk for a minute about mining policy. What should mining policy be? Because I think there are, the main thing is, I don't think these technologies are economic, but shouldn't we be have much better mining policy where we can actually mine for some of these things in a responsible way? So, yeah, I think somebody said we should, obviously. But think about two issues. We need to mine no matter what. Everything in the planet that we use, that we build, requires mining something. Full stop. There's no exceptions. It doesn't appear out of nowhere like Star Trek. There's no machine that you can push to get a coffee cup. Something was mined somewhere to make those machines and make those coffee cups to make toothbrushes. Everything has to be mined. And we have, we have a horrific uh, policy with respect to mining. We're hostile towards mines these days. It is more expensive to make energy from windmills and solar power, not just because of the mining, but because of the low density of the, uh, of the primary source. But if we're, going to promote, if we're going to promote those sources, and if we're going to promote uh, anything else with respect to sort of onshoring the United States, we ought to promote mining. In fact, maybe there's a simplistic way to do this. We know in the politics of energy, there's going to be both Republicans and Democrats supporting more wind and solar and more batteries. It's just the way it is in every state. My proposal is that for every, every single kilowatt hour of new energy that we're promoting, for wind, solar, and batteries, we ought to require one new pound of the materials we mine from America. We should change our policies to make that possible. The reason it's not possible now is it takes decades, not, not years, decades to get a permit. No, nobody in their right mind will wait that long to try to get a permit for mining America. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's the same kind of anti-industrial, anti-human impact uh, mentality, though, that, that leads to this glorification of allegedly low-impact solar and wind. And then, of course, you can't actually do it, which is part of what's insincere about the movement, is if, if you're against humans impacting, including mining, uh, right. you're against um, everything. I want to talk about, I mean, let me just share a thought that I've been having as, as you've been uh, talking, because it, it gets at what I like about your approach and what I think is wrong with the, the current approach. You know, you, you've mentioned repeatedly that these things don't happen by magic and they don't happen because we want them to happen. So you've talked about, right. well, it costs, it's, re, it's difficult to store energy or the amount of solar output in a given area right. is, is a fixed thing. What do you think is going on with how, it seems like the way people are thinking about energy is just, I would like some. I would like this thing I made up in my head to be as good as the thing that has been developed on the market via achievement and trade for a hundred years. Is that? It just seems like people think they can just make something up, and technology is infinitely malleable, so we can have exactly what we do with fossil fuels with anything we happen to come up with in our head. What's your sense of how people are? How, how the the policymakers and the leaders are thinking about this? Well, I, I think there's there's. I think you put it right in the sense that there's a lot of, it's kind of charming, that's a charming naivete 
if you like, confidence in engineers to think that they can do anything I imagine and make it cheap. I mean, it's, in, in, and I mean, only being mildly facetious. I mean, it really is. If you, if, if you think about, I, I have all these policymakers that imagine a, a solution that they think is better. And we just tell engineers to do it and give them some money and it'll happen. You know what, what charming naivete. I mean, these engineers are magical. They can do anything I want. They went to the moon. They said, look, we went to the moon. We should be able to, we should be able to do X. Wait, these are category error problems is what's going on. And the magical thinking comes because people are not being serious about, think, about thinking themselves, thinking the process through. Going to the moon is a lousy example of how you solve a problem for society. We put a dozen people on the moon. It's a huge deal. I'm a, I'm a huge, I grew up loved, following the space program. I'm a huge fan of the space program. But putting a dozen people on the moon is not the same as putting all of humanity on the moon. Energy problems are the equivalent of putting all of humanity on the moon. So the moonshot has no relevance with an analogy to what engineers can do that seems magical. Feeding everybody, powering all the cars in the world is a profoundly different category of things to do. The other category here that people make is the difference between what is, uh, we'll call it physics and what's called engineering. You, some things are just can't change. It, it's, it's not that I will spend more money on it and say, well, I'll make, I'll make solar power cheaper by subsidizing more. Well, if it's already cheap. It is pretty cheap. You can't, the subsidies don't change the flux of photons from the sun to the earth. Those are fixed. In computers, I can change things with magic, you know, coding and mathematics, do things in cyberspace. They don't change atoms. They don't change the physical world. So I, to be fair, uh, you know, I'll give you a quote from um, Feynman, one of the great physicists of the, of the 20th century. He, uh, he should have had Nobel Prize. I mean, one of these, one of these marvelous uh, educators in physics. He used to talk, give a lecture on energy, and he would say, energy is very difficult. It's one of the most difficult things to understand, and nobody really understands it. And then he would give an example and tell students, look, the units I use to measure energy, of the food you eat, are exactly the same as the units I use to measure the energy of how your muscles work. They're the same units I use to, use to measure the energy of the bicycle you'll pedal, the speed it goes, and the inertia it has, and they're the same units, same, same unit, exact same units as I use when the bicycle hits a wall and the energetic destruction of the wall is measured in energy. It's all the same, all the same units. These are very different things. How can they all be measured with the same units? It's, it's, it's bizarre. It's a very strange area, but because you can measure it with the same units, you can always bizarre category errors. If I said to you, I'm gonna give you a, a thousand pounds of gold or a thousand pounds of wood, which would you prefer? This is not complicated. But if I gave you a thousand BTUs of this form of energy, let's use wind, and a thousand BTUs of oil, which would you choose? They're the same. Well, no, they're not. There's a profound difference between them because of points you made earlier about utility, storability. Oil is trivially easy to store, trivially easy to convert into a useful form, and trivially easy to trans trans transport. Wind isn't. So these same units of energy have no, no correspondence. I can measure the heat energy from a fire with the exact same units as I measure the energy of a, of a laser. I can use the laser because of its, this phenomenon it has called the absence of entropy in it to do laser surgery. I can actually fix your eyes with that. Same units of energy as the fireplace. There's nothing about a burning stick that's gonna help fix your eyes like laser, but they're the same units of energy. Why is one better than the other? Well, as soon as I tell you what I'm giving you, it's obvious. But because the Department of Energy measures everything in the same units, 
And because people think in those terms, they get all this bizarre, magical thinking. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating about all these different categories. One final uh, question. So we've been talking about electricity, I mean, energy needs growing, electricity needs growing, particularly in the realm of information technology where it's virtually unlimited, really unlimited the value we can get from using more electricity, but it has these incredibly high reliability requirements. And then at the same right. time, we have this incredible policy direction toward kind of modest unreliables policies that are making things more expensive. But then we're talking about what I would regard as catastrophic unreliables policies to enforce these kinds of fantasies that people right. are making up. What is happening with the reliability of the grid now? And what do you see happening in the future? Because I've seen some warning signs, but I'm curious yeah. on your take. Well, so far the engineers have managed to, to uh, patch over and tolerate the degree of unreliability that's forced on them by adding the unreliables. Uh, and that's partly because the percentage of the electricity is so low. So as long as we stay at relatively low levels, uh, you can manage it. It adds costs, but and, and that's one of the hidden costs, by the way. The, the actions that are taken to keep the grid reliable when you push more unreliables on them has a physics and engineering and therefore economic cost keeping the grid operating, keeping lights on, computers running. Those costs show up somewhere. They show up in our bills problem we're going to have is as we push this harder and harder, we'll get, we will get to a tipping point. We will, I think it's probably pretty easy to predict. Uh, we will see some blackouts. This, that, that will happen. because There will be a point in time when some state could be more, most likely state is California, where, where some state has a hot day, a lot of air conditioners on, and they can't convince enough people to turn off their power, turn off their lights, you know, the demand, so-called demand-side management. And they won't have sufficient power because they won't be able to bring more power in from adjacent areas. There won't be enough batteries. There won't be enough pumped hydro. There won't be enough gas turbines left because you can't get permits to build them. So the lights will go out. I mean, the state of Texas was within uh, milliseconds of having a power grid failure uh, last year, a couple of times, when the wind just died on their massive wind farms in West Texas. And they were able to shed load, which means telling industrial customers turn off, disconnect briefly, and keep the lit lights on and the grid running. A little, a little more uh, uh, heat and more air conditioners running and not quite enough load that you can shed, or more wind that disappears when the, when the wind lull comes and then you get a blackout. We'll, we'll see them. I mean, I think it's not, I'm not saying this to be apocalyptic or to be an alarmist. I think that's the kind of path that we're on. The grid operators won't be able to keep the lights on 24-7 when there's too many unreliables on it, and there won't, won't be enough batteries. You simply can't build enough batteries. To give you one example, a Florida Power Light bragged about this new battery farm they're building in Florida. Massive, uh, I think it's gonna be a 400 megawatt hour battery, huge, huge battery farm. One of the biggest in the world when it gets built, assuming they finish it. Uh, on a hot summer day, that will run the Florida grid for about two minutes. <laughs> I mean, come on, the, the, the numbers are just crazy. That's a great, that's a great statistic. Well, Mark, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because if more people are aware of the facts that you very clearly explain, then we can avoid this path. I'm not a person who believes in, I don't, I don't relish the idea of education through failure. I think hopefully we can educate people maybe through the failures um, in, in the rest of the world. So uh, as we close, any, any final messages you want to share? And also where can people find out uh, more about your work? Well, the Manhattan Institute's the easy thing to uh, use in the magic Google machine. 
to find out of these I've written. I also have a lot of other uh, work at a website that uh, I maintain called Tech Pundit, tech-pundit.com. That, that has a, uh, a catalog of everything I've written for decades. Uh, so if you want to subject yourself to, to some, some of the earlier, earlier writings and, and speeches. I think the thing that you're on, Alex, which is important, uh, and I, too, like you, don't like us to learn lessons for failure. I'm, I'm also not naive. I think we are going to fail in a number of ways. We're going to, we're going to spend more money on wind and solar. We'll probably see some brownouts and blackouts. We're going to see some problems. I hope they're not severe. It, it probably will be uh, manageable initially. But I think people can be educated. I'm, I'm sure people can figure these things out. You know, let me end on this note. The Europeans aren't, uh, are not stupid about their plans. They know it's cost them a lot of money. And they know, for example, it's going to lead to massive imports of materials and minerals to build these batteries that they want to, they want to start now expanding. In, in so they, they're starting to plan to build battery farms, in, 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 in battery factories, rather, in Europe. And they want to open up, this is a really a shocker, the Europeans, EU committee proposed to open mines again in Europe. Wow. Now, this is kind of interesting, but the European bank is proposing to subsidize mines, like lithium mines, while defunding extractive industries like oil and gas in Europe. This is, this is a form of schizophrenia that's bizarre. And one of the, one of the mines that they were proposing to open in Northern Spain uh, for lithium carbonate uh, generated a massive local protest from environmentalists because they didn't want the mine open. If I were bet, if we are betting today, Europe won't open any new mines. They'll just get more materials from uh, Argentina, from China, in, you know, from the Congo. You know, the, your smartphone and your Tesla both have cobalt in it, and about half of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo. And we know from uh, UN organizations that about a fifth of the cobalt is mined by children by hand. This, these are, you know, these, there are real consequences to decisions people are making as you go upstream in the food chain. There are important things to know so that you know the decisions we're making. I think a lot of people actually don't know to, to the point you're making, Alex, that we should, we should tell people. We should get educated. Awesome. Well, thanks for your role in education on all of this, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Take care. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to Mark Mills for joining me. I want to elaborate a little bit on the point that came up at the end where I, I framed it as world needs more energy. We need more machine food. As I've talked about many times, there are 3 billion people who use basically no machine power in their lives and that, and we have a growing population. So we need more machine power, more machine food. In particular, there's going to be growing demand and need for electricity because electricity is the technology involved, the energy technology involved in the unlimited need for processing information better. And there are just so many frontiers and that demand is going up. And at the same time, the supply of electricity is being made more expensive and being made less reliable by these unreliables that we have a fetish with. And you would think, ironically, the people who are most pushing unreliable electricity are the people who most depend on it, namely the large tech companies. And they have ways of, of gaming the system now, because basically what they do is they get the utilities to give them credit for, uh, that basically say, hey, you're running all the solar and wind that everybody uses. So if everyone uses, say, 10% solar and wind, we're going to give credit for that whole 10% to you, and we're going to blame everyone else for the coal and gas and nuclear and hydro that you're 
using. So that's the game, which I, I talked about in a previous episode with Stefan Henna, uh, who works on my team at, at CIP. But you've got this trend and something has to give. And I think what we want to do is we want to catch it before it's, hap- before it's a disaster. And I want to stress there are blackouts all the time now in the, in the sense of not everyone is experiencing a blackout physically, but in the sense of powers being cut off to people who vitally need it. Now, those people are usually industrial customers. So people who run pharmaceutical factories or who are uh, you know, engaged in making aluminum or any number of other things. What happens is the, and, and uh, Mark mentioned this, and I think he used the, the usual term load shedding or that kind of thing. I mean, that's a euphemism. That's an industrial blackout. And I remember uh, a year or two ago, I was having a conversation, an off-the-record conversation with some utility people, and they said, yeah, you know, in this utility in July, we had to do these industrial blackouts 12 times. And I asked, how often did you used to have to do it? And they said, they looked at me like I was crazy and said, oh, of course, we never had to do it in the past because we were using coal and gas. We were using reliables. So what's happening right now as I'm speaking is that the grid is becoming less reliable. There's more strain put on it. And we have plans to make it far less reliable. So what can we do about it? Well, a lot of things I've discussed on this show, but one thing I want to highlight now and in particular ask for people who are involved in this issue technically to help with this, we need to tell the story about industrial blackouts and the damage they're doing and what that means for the future because residents don't see the issue usually. Now they'll occasionally hear, hey, you need to use a little less air conditioning during the summer. And it's, it's good that people have awareness of that, but they need to know that crucial American industries are being cut off left and right. And they need to know that that's not something that industry can tolerate in a globally competitive world. If you're a pharmaceutical factory or an aluminum maker and you can be cut off at any time, you, that is not, you're not going to stay in the United States. You're not, certainly not going to stay in the part of the United States where reliability is an issue, but the United States grid is very interconnected. So reliability issues affect large swaths of the country. So what I would ask is anyone in particular who's involved in industry that is experiencing this problem of industrial blackouts slash curtailment slash load shedding, all these idiotic euphemisms. If you're on the consumer end of that, I want to hear from you. And if anyone on the utility side wants to tell me, that would be great as well. And I'm happy to hear it off the record. Uh, I'm even happier to hear it on the record, or if you can recommend any stories or any what are called rate cases where this comes up. I'd really value that, but this story needs to be told and it really needs to be told quickly. It's the kind of story I wanna tell this election. Speaking of this election, one final note I wanted to make is when this comes out on, when Power Hour comes out on Wednesday, I've been talking for months about giving talking points this election for pro-energy, pro-freedom candidates, as well as pro-energy, pro-freedom citizens. So I finally have that initially launched. If you go to energytalkingpoints.com, right now it goes to just a Google Drive, but it's a public Google Drive folder, and it will just have a whole bunch of talking points on different issues. As I speak right now, there's only one set on the climate crisis, but there should be at least three, hopefully four by Wednesday, and then after that, a lot more. We may set up a different kind of website soon, But for now, if you are a candidate who is interested in energy issues, I think this will be a very valuable resource. And if you're a citizen who wants to comment on these things, this will be a valuable resource. One thing I want to note about 
the messaging is it's all designed to be very compact. So every piece of messaging in there is something that you can tweet or you can combine them together as a tweet thread. And you'll see some instructions uh, on that on that website. So it's energytalkingpoints.com. And in particular, if you're connected to any candidates or if you, and all of you are in some sense, refer candidates to this. So just tell them, go to energytalkingpoints.com that I, I just want as many people using this stuff as possible. And as I'll mention on the website, if any candidates want uh, any kind of custom help from me and my team, if they email me at alex at alexepstein.com and they say that they're a candidate or they're working with a candidate, I'll do my best to either help them in some custom way or I will, uh, over time, when I hear from different candidates, that'll help me develop new messages. I'm going to continue to develop this messaging. I'm going to be myself talking about it very publicly. So if you know of any major shows and programs that want to hear my take on energy and environmental issues in 2020, I'm going to start doing that aggressively. But I also want to make sure that the candidates are really armed because we're heading in such a dangerous direction in terms of energy policy and electricity policy. And there's an opportunity to do something about it, but it's a very limited time opportunity. I do not want to have just a total domination of this anti, really anti-reliable energy, anti-freedom rhetoric and policies. And we're going to somehow fix a climate crisis by mandating unreliable energy for everybody. And that's going to magically work. And it's going to magically have China and India stop doing that. Like, that's not going to happen. It's an immoral policy. And I want people to have the words to know that the moral policy is energy freedom, including the continuing use of fossil fuels and, in, and indeed the expanding use of fossil fuels. And I don't think most candidates are equipped at all for this right now. But they can be soon if they go to energytalkingpoints.com. Okay, that is it for today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. As I've already mentioned, energytalkingpoints.com. Check that out and I feel like I am forgetting something. Oh. If you like the work that I do in the Center for Industrial Progress does and you want to help fund our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts, things like these energy talking points that we are creating, you can become an accelerator. So go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate for that. All right. That is it for this week. Thanks again to Mark Mills for joining, you, uh, joining me. Next week, I'll be back again with some more great topics, hopefully another great guest. I have a couple in mind. As always, feel free to suggest some new guests. But in any case, until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.